Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group is calling for 1 million more homes to be made available for social rent by 2033. I've cleared the day, said Johnny Mercer in a text message on Monday night when I checked in ahead of our interview in Plymouth. Bring your swimmers, he added ominously, and a decent coat. At least half of this was good advice, because even for the southwest of England in February, the weather for our big day out was forecast to be a little cruel. Now, this was not yet Storm Eunice is currently preparing to wreak havoc right across the southwest as I speak. But actual gale force winds would be blowing in from the channel, the BBC informed me, along with plenty of heavy rain. Swimming weather, it was not. The sea looks inviting, Johnny texted optimistically as my train weaved its way along the southwest coast the following morning. Now this, to be clear, was untrue. The sea looked deeply uninviting, Lead grey and swirling and freezing bloody cold. Exactly as you'd expect at this time of year. But this was Johnny Mercer on his home turf and he was not to be deterred. Everyone moans about it, but it's... Oh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. He's freezing. This is why we love Plymouth, isn't it? More of that anon. And a word of warning. This week, there will be plenty of swearing. Now, you probably already know a fair bit about Johnny Mercer, more than you might expect to know about a backbench Tory MP whose entire ministerial career lasted a mighty one year, eight months and 23 days, and who never rose above the most junior rung of the ladder. You'll know Johnny Mercer because he's a bona fide war hero with three tours of Afghanistan under his belt. Or you'll know Johnny Mercer because he's a reality TV star having spent two weeks bunking off work and gallivanting round the country with Sky News' Kay Burley on a show called Celebrity Hunted. Or you might know Johnny Mercer just because he wears his heart very publicly on his sleeve, willing to go to war with his colleagues and his government over causes that he holds dear. Or perhaps you know Johnny Mercer from various comedy social media postings, whether it's picking ill-advised fights with punters in the comments section of his local newspaper website or chuckling away as his missus posts pictures of him drunk at home on the sofa. Johnny, who turned 40 last year, is something of a Marmite figure, loved by some as the straight-talking antithesis of the dreaded Westminster system, but disliked by others for what they see as his attention-seeking publicity stunts, his macho soldier patter, and his willful refusal to toe any party line. Now, I have no opinion on any of this, I'd never even met the guy before I accosted him in Portcullis House the other week and asked if he fancied appearing on this podcast. But I've been wanting to interview him for a while, because whatever you might think of him, down here in Westminster, Johnny Mercer is a rare breed. Yes, he, like so many, went to an expensive private school. You can hear it in his voice. But he's also one of a few dozen MPs who didn't go on to university, and one of a very few indeed who sold his car and took up bricklaying to support his family while campaigning for his seat. And he's the only one I've ever heard use his maiden speech to pay tribute to a friend who died in his arms on the battlefield. For those who doubt his sincerity, it's worth remembering that last year he blew up his dream job as veterans minister because he could not affect the change that he wanted. For those who doubt his political nous, it's worth pointing out that as long ago as 2015, he was taking inner-city seats off Labour, back when the phrase Red Wall was just a twinkle in an opinion pollster's eye. And for those who accuse him of publicity-seeking, well, he only agreed to this podcast interview if I agreed 
to jump in the English bloody channel. So, from Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, I'm headed west to Plymouth to meet Johnny Mercer and find out what this wild-swimming, camera-friendly warrior politician is really all about. I'm at Plymouth Station. It's Tuesday morning and Storm Dudley is rolling in. I'm just coming out of Plymouth Station and it is already raining. I can see a man in a white Range Rover coming to meet me and it must be Johnny Mercer. Hello, mate. How are you? Nice to see you. How are you doing? Johnny Mercer has promised me a look around Plymouth, a city I've never properly visited before. He picks me up from the station and we head into town in his car. It's Naveed. Naveed, nice to meet you. Hello, I'm Jack. Accompanying us is Naveed, a 32-year-old Afghan interpreter who Johnny helped get out of Kabul amid the chaos last summer. He's now living in Plymouth and works in Johnny's office. This is good Plymouth weather. Good storm barreling in off the Atlantic. Isn't it? Proper, isn't it? Yeah, it's good. We like it. You must like these weeks where you don't have to head into Westminster, do you? Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. Like, it's um, certainly the best part of the job. It's great. And you get a proper, like, feeling of what's going on rather than just sat there reading the media and, you know, and it's... um, Staring at Twitter and crying. Yeah. I mean, I've kind of... Yeah, I try and not do much of that these days. It's not particularly uh, healthy. So Monday to Thursday in London and then come down on Friday. I struggle with um, being an MP most of the time, but... um, Fridays is, is, is definitely good. Plymouth, for those who've never spent much time here, is a port city of a quarter of a million people on the Devon-Cornwall border, famed for its grand harbour and its vast naval presence. Plymouth's an amazing place, right? It's, uh, it, in terms of our history, it's been extraordinary, um, you know, particularly centred, obviously, around the Navy and the military, but there's a lot more to Plymouth than that. Um, we used to have a dockyard that dominated the... The landscape, 30,000 employees, that's gone down now to about 3,500. And that employment gap, if you like, has been taken up by some really special and intuitive and clever small businesses. And uh, that's become the backbone of the city, really. It's quite a long way from London. It's very, very different to London. It feels like almost a different country at times, different culture, different people, different society. But that's what we love about it. And that's why we live here. I fell in love with Plymouth when I was a boy and uh, and never left. We pull up outside the military base where Mercer's old commando unit is still based. Much of Plymouth's historic centre was flattened by the Luftwaffe during the Second World War, but this magnificent 17th century fort upon the hilltop remains intact. That's the Citadel. That was my unit, 2-9 Commando. It's a beautiful and, old Yeah, I mean, we'll pull up, I'll show you. I mean, it's a fort, right? I spent 14 years in the military. This was my parent unit. I sort of moved around a lot. But this is where I grew up. And uh, some of my mates' names are on that memorial from Afghanistan um, and Iraq. Um, So, yeah, this kind of shapes me, really. Later, Johnny takes me down through the Barbican, a lovely old street of pubs and attractive-looking shops. It's pretty deserted on a wet Tuesday morning in February but Johnny is animated at the thought of the warmer months to come. And there is nowhere really in the world like Plymouth Barbican on a bank holiday weekend in the UK, particularly in August. Uh, it's just absolute chaos. It's great fun. Um, and you just, you just spend the day sort of bumping into people that you haven't seen for a long time. These pubs are like world-famous pubs and maritime. The Navy is like known all over. You've got all these quaint little shops as well and beautiful art shops. And this is basically where I grew up. Johnny's written movingly in the past about his difficult childhood, an intensely strict religious upbringing, followed by long, lonely years at boarding school. I wonder out loud why he felt so at home in the military. It's a good question. It was a, you know, a sort of values and ethos-based organisation, which I thought was really important. But ultimately, I suppose, yeah, I, I did want to fight. You don't join the commanders if you don't want to. Combat is like the harshest meritocracy going. And I, I definitely wanted to, to do that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, I was very proud of 
my country and everything but I you know I accepted these things weren't free and if someone had to go and fight I was more than happy to go and do it but it's not all about that you know it's the it's the, the people you meet are a huge part of it um, you know the lifestyle you lead and, and and who it makes you I think the biggest thing that no one talks about is what it teaches you about yourself but you become quite self-aware and I you know I, I like that in a way I think a lot of people could do that we're high up now along the seafront, and even in the mist and the rain, the views are impressive. Johnny is still insisting he wants to go for a dip. This is um, the cafes along the seafront, and this is where everyone does a bit of swimming in the winter. As you can see, some swimmers coming up there. Everyone um, does a bit of swimming in the winter. Are you sure about that? It's about seven degrees out there, man. Yeah, they do. <laughs> they do. They love it. And you'll meet some of me, but maybe there'll be some people down there. We're a bit late. We like to go in first thing, really, but... Um, there might be some people down there. You can't like mess around because it's quite cold. So we'll get in, we'll go for a swim, go round the boy, come back. Can you swim, by the way? That what? That boy right out there? No. Good. <laughs> can you swim? Yeah? I can swim. Okay. Um, I can swim, buddy. And then we'll get in the it's, car. It's been a while since I swam in February. And then we'll get in the car and then we'll go down the seafront, find somewhere nice, have a coffee. And chat. I, can't, I can't believe you're going to make me actually do this. Feels like an initiation ceremony for Plymouth, this. Get in and get straight in the water. Come on what's, then. What's not to love? What's not to love? Mate, it's, 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 it's an actual side. gale. There's people struggling to walk out there. Right, let me just sort out the party. Come on then. This is the real English sea there, isn't it, eh? Look, Navy ships out in the harbour. So there's a massive, I'm going to call it a battleship, because I have no idea what that is. But it's uh, big and grey with guns on it right out in the harbour. There is indeed someone swimming. Obviously, he's got a wetsuit on. <laughs> the storm's coming in. So I think I'm going to get in and get out pretty fucking quickly. 10 minutes. 10 minutes. that's when the science works. What happens after 10 minutes? The science starts to work. Apparently, it's really good for you. Between three and 10 minutes. I've had more convincing answers from MPs. <laughs> people sheltering here under a, an old prom because obviously they don't want to stand out in the howling rain. Beautiful day for it. Oh, lovely. It's hot tonight. Have you been in? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Looks cold. Is it cold? It's always cold. <laughs> That's not what he just told me. All right, we're doing this. Wish us luck. Now. Those of you expecting shrieking and squealing noises at this point from your Westminster Insider host are going to be sorely disappointed. Partly because I left the recording kit on the shore for obvious reasons, and partly because if you're going cold water swimming with ex-military types, then basic human pride means you don't bloody squeal. But for the record, we ran right in and stayed in for the full ten minutes, enough time for the quote-unquote science to start working. It kind of feels a bit warmer once, you know, your entire body's gone completely numb. But getting out is as difficult as it sounds. A small crowd of onlookers has gathered to greet us by the time we get back to shore. One of them, clearly a pro, has the remnants of a hot water bottle with him. He generously pours the contents over my feet, which are starting to turn worryingly blue now we're back on dry land. Thanks for the hot water, mate. <laughs> We didn't actually make it round the boy, but we're in there for about 10 minutes and uh, yeah, it's absolutely as cold as it looks. Johnny, just tell us for the mic, why would you start the day like that? Yeah, well, we're all much more cheerful now, aren't we? How miserable were you walking down it? Yeah, swimming in the ocean in February in, under the gaze of a battleship, basically where Plymouth is at. <laughs> okay, we're going to get a brew. We head up the hill, teeth chattering, to a cafe perched on the clifftop with big glass windows looking out across the bay. It's a beautiful spot. I mean, I'm far too cold to enjoy it, but still. Oh, mate, thank you for that. Yeah, it's nice, it's, isn't it? It's doing the world a good, I'm sure. It's good. Yeah, the benefits are quite significant, apparently. Just, just so you know, everyone's teeth are now chattering. <laughs> <laughs> Over lots and lots of very hot coffee, we talk about Johnny's pre-Westminster memoir, one of the few books by a modern-day MP that I've actually enjoyed. I tell him the parts about his upbringing, his gruelling training, and especially the friends he lost in Afghanistan, are genuinely affecting. There's a particular moment in June 2010 
where his unit is ambushed by Taliban fighters and one of his closest mates is killed, brutally, right in front of him. It's very hard to read. The reality of being in those situations is a lot of the time you are really fucking scared. Um, and for me, it was the thing that really, I really enjoyed about it in a way, it was kind of the human dynamic, how people operate when they're really fucking scared. Um, what people will do for each other, you know, kind of, yeah, how far does camaraderie and kind of love and patriotism go? Um, and it was, in, in that respect, it was absolutely fascinating. Was it cathartic writing it? I think I'm a bit too thick to get PTSD. I didn't sort of sit there and dwell on this. I, I consider, uh, I think I'm really lucky. I'm really lucky, A, obviously, to be alive, B, to have experienced these things. And, and I think those of us who do have a duty to espouse what it was like to others, largely for the guys who don't come out of it alive, or for the guys and girls who really, really struggle when they come home. The spectators having a go at me this morning saying I'm veterans obsessed and all this crap. I just don't care what they think because we owe these people. And that, that's ultimately what drove me here into politics because I just couldn't abide the way this country treats people like that. In his maiden speech after being elected in 2015, Mercer said his mission in Parliament was to improve veterans' care. I come here unapologetically to improve the plight of veterans and their families. I look forward to the challenge. It's clear from his regular public complaints since that he's not much enjoyed Westminster life. And having finally been appointed Veterans Minister in 2019, he was sacked 18 months later after threatening to quit over his own government's dismal inaction. Do you ever regret the decision to, um, to be an MP? No. No, because I've, because I've achieved stuff and I've changed stuff. And if anything, it, it's shown me that if I wasn't doing it, I'm not sure anybody else would. I long for someone else to come in and kick the door down and really make a difference in this space so that I can kind of take my foot off the gas and get into the other stuff I'm interested in. Um, but that hasn't happened yet. When I left government, it was obviously a pretty low time. But I got offered some wonderful jobs that I would never, you know, Johnny aged 18 would never have had a sniff at. But I just can't let this, I can't let this thing go how we look after the Afghan generation. I just, I don't know why. And maybe it's a bit sad, but I don't know. It's just been kind of baked in. And I can't get rid of it. What does your missus think? Does she please do a still an MP? No. She recently got a Twitter account. She seems absolutely intense on, on, on destroying any last vestiges of self-esteem I had. Johnny's wife, Felicity, in case you missed it, recently tweeted a picture of him unconscious on the sofa after a hard day of televised sport, telling the world he'd just taken an unexpected phone call from Boris Johnson, but was, quote, too pissed to remember what was said. I mean, we've all done it. So no, she doesn't like me being an MP. She's trying to sabotage from within. Mm. Yeah, there's a spy in the camp. <laughs> Must be hard on the family now, you've got young kids. Yeah, you? it is hard, it is hard, but I would reiterate that now, I get, I, I, my experience is, is great compared to a lot of my colleagues who get a really hard time. Wherever we go in Plymouth, people are lovely to me. I, I think that's, that's a real privilege. It used to be a Labour seat, didn't it? The guys in my constituency used to vote for Michael Foote. It's quite a political journey, that. But I understand. I do understand why they voted for Michael Foote. And I understand why they voted for me. That's why I speak up when I do, like... It's, it's quite a horrible culture around Westminster, this idea that you only ever do anything, you know, for attention or for anything like this. I mean, I honestly feel when things go awry or we do something stupid that I have a duty to speak up. Otherwise, they'll be like, well, Johnny's just like everybody else. We'll just vote Labour again. Mercer won Plymouth Moorview unexpectedly at the 2015 election, one of only nine seats the Tories took directly off Labour all night. CCHQ had written the seat off months before, withdrawing all funds and ordering Mercer to campaign for a neighbour instead. He refused. We were doing it a long time before this whole red wall thing, by the way. This idea that this is a new Boris phenomenon is 
for the birds. You know, he's he's obviously done well to win those seats, but some of us were winning Labour seats a long time before that. I've always thought that voices like mine, who had actually sort of won Labour seats and gone out, contested, had an argument, won the argument for the Conservative Party, they would be kind of at the forefront of what the Conservative Party should be about, you know, and instead we can sometimes become a bit too quick to get away from that and back towards theory and ideology and away from really making a difference in people's lives. They, they vote for us because we'll look after the economy and we will um, improve the life chances of their kids in poor cities like mine. You know, that's, it's the kind of aspirational hope of Toryism that, you know, that I, I would like to represent. But you go to London and all this stuff gets forgotten. It's all a game. It's all a stage. You know, you've got all the spads prancing around and I don't know, get a bit lost through. But I mean, the people that you see getting on these senior ministerial jobs and senior advisor roles are the people playing those games. Disingenuous people often, they've never had to fight for a seat like yours. Doesn't that do you ready? It's hard, yeah, when things you really care about, you know, whether it's uh, universal credit or stuff around veterans and the military, and, and you're dealing with ministers who should we just say are not are not really there for their ability in that particular space but um you know might be very very good at the other side of politics you know turning the line or whatever maybe yes it is frustrating and but that's you know that 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 is politics and i've had to get used to it there's no point howling at the weather you still freezing? My, I'm still shaking with cold. Still, still, your feel benefit. Can you feel your your skin I feels mean, quite sort of tingling? That's sort of tingling just before a heart attack. Sort of. No, 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 it's not. Like, it's good fun. You like swimming in the Arctic, in Arctic poles or something. Yeah, yeah that's not so much fun. That's kind of a survival thing, right? So I was telling the bike because I brought him to Plymouth, and I feel a bit guilty if I'm honest. Sometimes I feel a bit guilty. And I'm like, no, you just need to hang on for the summer because in the summer it would be completely different. Like, this is where everyone comes on holiday. It's beautiful out there. Yeah. Everyone's swimming, you know. But uh, at the moment, poor bastards just like dodging, dodging the icebergs, aren't you? <laughs> but it will get better. Johnny is talking now to Navid, his Afghan friend who's accompanied us for the day around Plymouth. Navid worked as an interpreter embedded with the British forces and Johnny helped get he and his young family, tiny baby and all, out of Kabul in those chaotic final days before the Taliban took control. And he didn't just get them out, he got them to Plymouth and has spent the last nine months finding them work, a place to live, schools and all the rest. It's honestly kind of amazing. How hard was it to get out at the end? Very hard. Really hard. Yeah. What did you have to do, Johnny? <laughs> Various nefarious ways, but eventually we got him out through some friends from a unit that we both used to work with who were there, who basically facilitated a passage for him. Yeah, I mean, it was horrendous. We tried to go the normal way, but he, he had a, like... How old was the baby then? Three months? No, 35 days. 35 days, right? So the baby nearly died trying to get into the Baram Hotel. Like, literally, they were allowed to bring one bag and then true to form, obviously, the RAF lost that bag. So he came here with absolutely nothing. Incredible. Uh, literally no pants or nappies for the kids. And were you the first port of call? Yeah. People forget what it's like to have, like, literally nothing. Like, can't even get a bank account or a phone line. Thank you very much. <laughs> what the fuck? People forget that for these people. And, you know, when I read the stories now about how they're not being looked after absolutely snaps me. It's not, it's not much effort to look after these people. Why, why the hell would you abandon them? I can't get my head around it. Anyway, so we're, we're, we're rebuilding a new life there, aren't we? Got him a nice house. Plymouth City Council have been really great. Got him a nice house. We've got the kids in school. Um, we are now wrestling with driving license. Yes. Yeah, we thought he had a license. We finally found it and it's out of date. So we are going to try and find someone to give him driving lessons. He works for me, comes in the office every day. He's a lot cleverer than me. He just doesn't speak English. That's the issue. So, so I'm obviously, I I'll stop him going to his language courses in case he takes over. Um, but 
I think we, we owe these guys, right? We owe these guys and girls. We've got to give them something. Do you still feel very angry about it? Yeah, I feel very bitter about it. I feel very bitter towards particularly ministers. Yeah. I feel very bitter about the resettlement scheme. I try not to show it, but, you know, long before Afghanistan collapsed, people were trying to change the resettlement scheme to get more of these guys back. And we're just completely fobbed off, you know, by Priti Patel, Ben Wallace. And now, you know, 11,500 still in hotels. Can you imagine being in a hotel room with your four kids for six months? It's fucking dire. It's shameful. It's really shameful. But it seems like, unless, you know, it's in the news and you guys carry it forward as journalists, like, it's, it's hard to get away from the notion that we just don't really care as a country. For me, you know, for people with my experiences, and there's lots of us, it makes you feel pretty bitter, yeah. Do you have some sympathy with it? It was all very last minute and it's a logistical no. challenge. It's hard to do. No. Not at all. It's pretty obvious what was happening. Uh, I think on the resettlement stuff, we've battled against some pretty nasty politics about migrants coming to this country. A lot of which has been fueled by the Conservative Party over the years. Yeah, yeah, and it's shameful. Absolutely shameful. In communities like mine, where people do genuinely care about immigration, politicians have been so quick to not differentiate between people like Naveed and literally like people traffickers who are coming here as economic migrants, that it's just kind of poisoned the well. And so when we're trying to help people like Naveed, I mean, I found people generally are amazing, like literally people offering him cars, jobs, somewhere to stay. So that the heart of British society is absolutely on the money. But for some reason, you know, the government gets itself in all sorts of knots on this issue. What sort of reception have you had from ministers when you've tried to... I mean, you've raised this endlessly for months now, but what, you know... Are you, do you, in private, do you get any... Well, any... we'll put it this way, Jack. If, if I was getting anywhere, I'd probably shut up about it. Like, I don't get out of bed every day and think to myself, who can I whinge at today about Afghan or veterans? So the reason I supported Boris Johnson is because... I genuinely thought out of all the contenders, he would do what he said he would on veterans. Would you go back into government? Would you fancy it again? Well, I, I, I couldn't go back unless um, we got this stuff right. Otherwise, it'd just look like a massive sellout. And I wouldn't go back to doing that again. It was really hard. It was really heartbreaking. It was hard because of the way government works. Right? There's loads of services available for veterans. The really difficult thing is navigating them, pulling them together, which is why government's the only thing that can really do it, right? But... Literally to the point where, you know, number 10 spads would phone me up and say, the Prime Minister has directed me to tell you, you are not to go on the Today programme and talk about what help is available for veterans. I'd be like, why? And they're like, oh, we're launching something to do with Brexit tomorrow, some scheme or whatever. I was like, fine, when, when can we do it? In the next week, next two weeks? No, no, there's just no time in the grid. You know, stuff like that. And that was multiplied over many, many occasions right like 15 20 occasions when we had a good thing to launch about veterans i mean i never did a broadcast round in two years when i was a veterans minister it's not because i want to be on the bloody radio right but i do want to be out there saying guys you know veterans there's amazing help out here this is how you get it and the calculation you make is are you better off on the back benches where you can say what you want and do what you want or in here as a junior minister, where, yes, you've got the job title, but you can't actually do anything. And you're under their lock and key, essentially. And you're under their lock and key. And so every time I mention something, like, even if I mention something on Northern Ireland, I get an angry little phone call from either the Secretary of State or some spad. You know, spads phoning me up and giving me a bollock. It was absolutely hilarious. I was like, you know, who the fuck do you think you are? Right? Well, it's like a comedy skit, you know. In my political judgment, Johnny, I wouldn't say that. And I'd think to myself, where have you got that political judgment from? You're 23 years old. You've worked at a fucking comms agency, right? I served for 14 years. I won a seat we'd never won before. I think my political judgment's all right, actually. No, 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 it's not, it's not going to fit with the core message. I'm like, what core message? You're not even a member of the fucking Tory party. So, you know, I'm afraid, you know, the, the kind of rotating door between being a spad, working in CCHQ, working for a comms agency. I mean, do you think people in Plymouth really take that stuff seriously? Of course they don't. 
you know, they want conviction politicians who are going to lead, yes, make mistakes, but ultimately change their lives. And uh, you don't get that by sort of managing a message with hundreds of spads running around wetting themselves every time you speak about veterans. Coming up in part two, Johnny will take me to meet some friends and voters up in the heart of his constituency and canvas their views on the Partygate scandal gripping number 10. And we'll find somewhere quiet to talk through the horrors of Afghanistan and whether there's anything Boris Johnson could do to get him back on side. Stay with us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has been a champion of social housing for decades. And since 2018, it has provided more than £17 billion to the sector. Working with Crisis, the national charity for people experiencing homelessness, Lloyd's Banking Group is campaigning for one million more homes for social rent to be made available over the next decade. Affordable, sustainable and high-quality homes are the foundation of a healthy society and prosperous economy. Yet it is estimated that more than 8.5 million people in the UK cannot access the housing they need. Find out more about why this is so important and how it contributes to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper at lloydsbankinggroup.com. Well, if there's one thing I'll say for cold water swimming, it definitely gives you an appetite. It's gone midday and I've badgered Johnny into driving us into the heart of his Plymouth Moorview constituency to a local calf for lunch. You can run across the constituency in 10 minutes. It's not a big constituency. Do you still have parts of it which are very stubbornly Labour? Oh, I'll, yeah, I'll still get told to fuck off every now and then, yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't like it when they do it when they're rude to people who work for me. I don't mind if they're rude to my face. No, I completely understand. To be honest, like, you know, nine times out of ten, they've probably got a point. Have you been receiving a lot of grief the last few months, like many of your Tory MP colleagues have been getting? Yeah. What sort of stuff have you been hearing? Well, I think it's fairly obvious, isn't it? One rule for one rule for the Tories and one rule for everyone else. I mean, it's a pretty cut-through message. And the problem we've got this time is that Unlike other political scandals, like we have asked people to do pretty horrendous things during this pandemic, not say goodbye to their parents, not bury their children. And if at the same time, people in number 10 are just seem to think it's all a laugh, then I'm afraid, you know, that ain't gonna go down very well in places like Plymouth. So I think Boris has obviously been damaged by it. Is it terminal? I'm not so sure. We'll have to wait and see. Um, well, you can find out. You can go and ask them yourself up at Porky's. If Porky's going to do us some lunch as well? Yes. It's got a Michelin star. You're joking. I am joking. Yeah. <laughs> Thank Christ for that. Yeah, he's definitely joking. Porky's Cafe is great. A greasy spoon in the classic mould and exactly what we need in this weather. But, I mean... Ought cuisine, it's definitely not. That shit, you get up to in Westminster, smells now. This is proper politics down here. Proper politics in Porky's proper, Takeaway. Proper politics. Porky's is one of the premier eating establishments in the Southwest. It's run by a couple of friends of mine called Dave and Sharon. And they are lovely, lovely people. Hey, huh? How are you? We have cuddles. Oh, this is beautiful. Hello, I'm Jack. Dave and Sharon greet Johnny like old friends. How 
Oh, it's yeah. selfies and hugs in here oh, already. Oh, yeah, you can have a selfie with Johnny Mercer when he comes in. Um, I just said, um, Missy and the girls. Johnny hasn't been in here for ages, and Dave is keen to tell him how pleased he was with the government's support during the pandemic. Government fantastic. Give us our money. Up the through. It was too much, really. Well, we paid our taxes. We paid our taxes. We just had to pay it back to them, really. We give it one hand, we give it by the other. Their daughter, however, is less happy with the benefit system. Took me off the tax credits, put me on universal credit. Happy with that? Yeah. Why not? Because that's monthly payment on it. Oh, But when you see Boris, can you ask him if he can pay for a year's slimming world for me? A year's slimming world? Yeah, because I lost. I do. I lost two and a half stone. Who told you you needed? Then he. No, no, he wouldn't he dare, would he? No, he'd fucking no. knock him out. Ah, uh, yes, Johnny! So, <laughs> yeah, yeah I lost two and a half stone and then <laughs> Boris locked me down, so yeah. I had to with lots what? of gin and red wine and have barbecues. Dave is a community activist as well as a cafe owner and even stood to be an independent councillor at the last local elections. I asked him what he made of the Partygate scandal, which has been obsessing us all in Westminster. At the end of the day, who would you vote for? And they say, Boris. People like him because of the way he is. And that hasn't changed. They still like him. No, yeah, they don't like the rest of us. Yeah. Boris is a, is a people person. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Not a government person, but a people person. <laughs> We're joined by the local vicar, another community activist. Dave says the area used to have huge social problems, but it kind of sounds like the pair of them have turned much of it around. They've worked with local authorities to tackle antisocial behaviour and are organising all manner of community activities at venues right across the area. We're, we're just putting on more and more things now, so we've just had a call from the youth workers. We have 45 youth on a Monday, they now want to go on a Wednesday. We get 35 kids on a Thursday. We've got Kingdom Club. We've about 70 people come to church on a Sunday. Are you serious? Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it's amazing. You should come up Friday. Sharon, meanwhile, has been waiting to tell Johnny about the problems she's had trying to get an appointment to see her local GP. I'll tell you what you need to sort out anyway, Mr Mercer. Go on. Doctors. Oh, that's bad, isn't it? I damaged my foot, so I rang and rang and rang. So in the end, I eventually got a call sent me for an x-ray, which takes two weeks. I cannot. Three weeks, got in to see her. Off I go to physio. So then I rang again, finally get a ring back. So he's like, what do you want me to do? We don't just put you in a hospital. They go through another system. I may get an appointment or I may get a telephone call. So you're not happy? No. When you go home today, send that over to me, my email. Okay, and uh, I will get an answer for you. We've struggled for years to get GPs to come and work down here. Yeah. It's quite a deprived area. Okay, it is. Um, there's a lot of heavy use of the NHS, um, and they have to work really hard. It's very difficult for them. Um, we're generally speaking about 20, 22 GPs down in Plymouth. Um, about two years ago, I managed to persuade Simon Stevens, who was then in charge of the NHS, to run a recruitment program specifically for Plymouth. Right. We got one applicant and then he yeah. dropped out. Oh my God. So that is how hard it is to get doctors to come to Plymouth. Someone else in the cafe has a complaint for Johnny too about the local mental health services. They had a breakdown last year, they said, and all they were offered was a number for the Samaritans. Johnny promises to look into that too. This is the hidden workload undertaken by hundreds of our backbench MPs around the country each week. The stuff you never see on the telly. The stuff for which they get precious little credit. This is good food, eh? You like it, yeah? <laughs> so I must ask, is it true? Did no. Boris have parties in lockdown? Uh, you didn't say no quick enough for my liking, mate. You just grasped him right up. <laughs> You're too I slow. I don't, honestly, I don't think Boris sat there and thought, I'm just going to take the piss and have loads of parties. No. No, no I don't I think, think, I think that. if you live and work in number 10, it's a blurred line, right? Yeah. Did some of his staff take the piss? Of course they did. Yeah. And, but then um, they were together. All did they the take time. the piss whilst telling other people not to do it? Yes. Unforgivable. Yes. Yeah. But is but it worth? Is it worth? Boot, is care. it worth booting out no, the prime minister for? I, I, I like Boris. I like and Boris. I can, sir, here's Stammer. Stammer is saying thing. 
when there's a photo of him in his office with a can of beer in his hand with his portfolio. Who was the one no. that was snogging the other lady? Oh, Mike Hancock. Oh, yeah. Matt Hancock. Matt oh, Hancock, yeah. I like Matt, Han Matt Hancock well, as well. I don't. He was snogging everyone in COVID. Ugh. No, he was only snogged one of them. Well, how do you know that? He only caught well, snogging well, one. He was bum as well, wasn't he? Ooh, so, that's disgraceful. <laughs> Johnny goes to pay the bill. We've all been chatting so long that Dave can't remember what we ordered, so he just says he'll charge Johnny a tenner. Johnny tries to give him 20 quid, but Dave won't have it. In the end, he pays the ten, and we say our goodbyes, Johnny promising to bring his kids back here soon to see them all. Mate, that place is a lot more than a calf, isn't it? When I was campaigning in that first time I did every door, and I was on the road for like five and a half months, we used to get up in the morning, do the morning session, here for lunch, afternoon session, go back, pick up the kids, literally every day, five, six days a week. And we got to know everyone around here. It was great. And that very much kind of like defined my politics rather than being a massive Tory or anything like that. They don't care about party politics in there, eh? They don't care about party politics in there, but that doesn't mean that I don't. I do, you know, I'm a, I am proud to be a Conservative Member of Parliament and I think that a modern Conservative Party will improve these guys' lives faster than anybody else. We drive back to Johnny's constituency office. Before we head for a pint, I wanted to find somewhere quiet to ask him about his time in Afghanistan and what he made of the horrors of last summer. It is 10.30 in the morning in Kabul, where Afghans are facing a third full day of Taliban rule. A takeover of the city has triggered deadly scenes of panic at the airport as people desperately try to leave. The message for the Prime Minister is just to get us out from here. Devastating, yeah, absolutely devastating. Because I think Afghanistan can seem quite sort of remote um, in this country. But once you've committed as much as you know, quite a few people have committed to that country, many more than me. It's quite hard to watch it all collapse and come down and all turn to dust. Did you see it coming? Or were you as shocked as the rest of us who only half pay attention to these things? Uh, I didn't see uh, the collapse of Kabul. I thought that the country would split in two, but I thought they would hold out in Kabul and places like that. But, you know, the thing that that killed them again was the corruption you know it's just such a corrupt country um, the president left and uh, they really had no hope it's quite hard to get your head around the fact that the people you were literally like trying to find and kill are now in ministerial positions in Afghanistan I mean that's quite hard to get your head around even for us I had high hopes for a better Afghan not a perfect Afghanistan because it would never never be so but you know, that's what we were fighting for. Um, and in the end, you know, politically, we, we lost patience. And I think that is very sad, but also a huge mistake. I can't see how the West is not involved in Afghanistan again. Does it change how you feel about the time you spent there? No. Um, you know, you do what you can at, at, at the given moment with what's going on. And what we were doing then was so kind of, that's all I wanted to do with my life was to kind of, lead men and women in combat, you know, test yourself at that most visceral level. And it was a huge privilege to do that with some extraordinary special people, both British but and Afghan as well, um, fighting against pretty bad people. And so was I happy to have that fight? Absolutely. So that, you know, we can enjoy the freedoms and privileges we enjoy here. Um, and I don't regret that. Uh, I am very, very sorry to the families of all those who died and came back with severe injuries um, and severe injuries to their minds as well. Yeah, because you don't commit this much and expect to lose. Do you ever think about what made you want to go out there and do that? You know, you've talked about wanting to, you know, wanting to be part of the army. Like, what is it inside you that makes you want to go out? You know, I'd be terrified going out and fighting, doing some of the stuff I was reading you were doing. There's something about combat, definitely, that people don't really talk about because some of it's quite unpleasant. There's something about testing yourself in a real furnace, you know, where, I mean, it's the ultimate meritocracy, isn't it? Um, and there's something about being with other people in that moment and sharing those emotions and those experiences with other people 
there's there's something about that. Um, ultimately, I think I've always enjoyed this. Is one of the parts I found really hard about life now is that I've always enjoyed being part of a team. Like I don't really want to be the main bloke or anything like that. I know I'm not perfect. I make loads of mistakes. I don't want to be prime minister. I don't want to do any of that stuff. But I do want to be part of a team, you know, achieving special things. And I love getting the best out of people. And combat was fantastic for that. I saw lots of people fail as well. You know, it wasn't all just milk and honey. You know, I've, I've seen people snap and, you know, and ask me to get them out of somewhere and just break mentally break in front of you and that's okay as well I, I just I just enjoy that amphitheater of human emotion I think because it's real I think it's because it's real and I find I find so much of life an act by so many people everyone's so nervous about their own insecurities their own shortcomings that loads of people are acting all the time and I do find that difficult I find it really difficult um, and when I was doing all that stuff, it was real. It was all very real. Um, and you're with, yeah, you're with really, really special people. And that obviously is what drives me to this day because I'll never forget that. What Mercer wants is for veterans' care to be made a genuine government priority, with a cabinet-level minister coordinating efforts to ensure every former serviceman or woman is properly looked after when they return to civilian life. What people don't understand is that they're asking them to embrace these human experiences twice a day, every day, for seven months without a day off. I still don't think the nation has truly come to terms with the cost of that commitment. And that is warfare. You know, that is, that's what the nation commits to and it commits to war. War is that human interface, that human amphitheater, if you like. And for a few of us, it's extraordinarily intense. And I don't, I don't talk about it to wave it in anybody's face. It's just that I don't think we as a nation have come to terms with what we ask the generation of young people to do. And I think we owe them for that. I think the nation does think that. I think politicians in a way think that, but it's just not quite important enough for them. So my job now is to be as irritating and cantankerous about the whole thing as much as I possibly can until they step up to the plate and deliver their many promises over many years. Because it's no good Boris going on about veterans care. If there's a plumber who lives down the street here, he left four or five years ago, he starts hitting a few snags and he has literally no idea where to turn. That's the problem. That's how you mark yourself. Not by we've done this and we've done that and national insurance breaks and employees. It doesn't mean anything when you're hanging out with PTSD or whatever it may be and your life's falling apart on Victoria Road in Plymouth. And it's so easy to do. It, require, it doesn't require any money, really, because the programmes are there. It's just genuine political commitment uh, to, to, to prioritising it enough, caring enough to think, yes, I'm going to pull all this together. That's what the veteran pledge was about when he became prime minister. And I will keep hammering Boris until he does what he said he would on this issue. Do you still have faith that's going to happen without wanting to be brutal about it? You backed him in the leadership. He made the pledge, he put you in as veterans minister, and then we all saw what happened. Like, Why would you think that he's, it's going to change from where we are now? Yeah, it's a really fair challenge, but what other options have I got? Rishi Sunet? I, I, I personally, you know, you, you heard what they just said in, in the cafe, right? I, I don't want a leadership change. I think it's a lot of wasted time. I just want Boris to be Boris and do what he said he'd do. And if he did that, then I, I would fully support him. I was asked to put something out supporting him when it was all all up in the air that weekend, a couple of weeks ago. I just said no, not until he fulfills his promises on veterans. And if he does that, I'll, 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 I'll advocate for him again. Of course I will. Because, you know, as you can see, there's lots of other very positive stuff around. But to me, he made a very clear pledge uh, to the nation, not really to me, but to, to the veterans community, that he has chosen not to fulfil. So so clearly, you know, it's going to be a bit rough for a while. You must feel let down. I don't feel let down by him. I feel let down by the people around him, yeah. Yeah, I do feel badly let down by the people around him, actually. Yeah. Um, because he's prime minister, he's got a million things to think about. 
And he should really be able to say to his ministers, get this done and it happens. You've got no intention to choose a different path. You've got, you're going to fight the next election and you're going to yeah. keep fighting. Fucking right. Yeah, I'm not getting into it. I will keep charging down this track because what about the guy who lives down there who's a plumber? He's got no platform to do it. I'm not in this for what they think of me in Westminster. I'm in it for him. I'm in it for Dave. I'm in it for Naveed. Those, those are the people that, you know, so, and when it's like that, it's a lot easier as well because you don't worry. Like you don't worry about whether you're doing the right thing for your career and all the rest of it. I mean, I've basically like blown myself up, right? But for me, that wasn't a hard decision. I don't understand why you would do this job, right? If you didn't have a cause. What's attractive about it? Not much, okay? You're away from your family. You know, you're in the public eye. Everyone criticizes you, everything you do. Everyone's got an opinion. Why would you want that? Unless you actually believed in something and it was a vehicle to get things done. And that's why I don't understand why, you know, a lot of other MPs are there. I don't understand why they'll go into government and completely change their views on something. I just don't understand that way of doing politics. I don't know why you would bother being in politics because you can, you know, you can have a much more fulfilling life elsewhere. Can I have two of them? That's why. You're going to let me pay for these or what? So that's Johnny Mercer, the soldier who quit the job he loved to pursue a career he clearly hates, but who'll keep on dragging himself down to Westminster anyway for a cause that he holds dear. Is there space in Parliament for former soldiers who act on impulse and refuse to play the Westminster game? I'd like to think so. It's pretty obvious why he rubs so many in SW1 up the wrong way and equally obvious why he couldn't care less what any of them think. A day out in his constituency was every bit as entertaining and eye-opening, or at least frostbite-inducing, as I'd hoped. And I don't know, maybe in the end, whether you're charmed by what you see as political honesty or rolling your eyes at what you see as political naivety says a bit more about you than it does about him. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Jack Blanchard. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. These episodes are not really time-sensitive, so why not have a look through our back catalogue too for others that you might enjoy? My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my UK editor is Kate Day. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.